You're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network, another great edition of the Jewish Reaction brought to you by the OU, the OU Jewish Reaction Program, uh, every single week here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Don't forget to check out everything that we have to offer on social media, including our Facebook update page, simply entitled Nachum Siegel Network. Make sure to like the page so you're up to date on everything that's happening uh, within our network. Um, on Twitter, at Nachum Siegel Net. On Instagram, simply Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, our thanks to the OU for always bringing us interesting guests. This is a guest that we we always love speaking to and we could do a million interviews with. He is um, <laughs> one of the world's only halachic adventurers. That's what I would call him. He's part of a team known as Ari and Ari. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Ari Zivotowski and Dr. Ari Greenspan are known for their halachic adventures. In fact, there's even a website, halachicadventures.com. And in addition to all that, in addition to seeing the uh, the website and everything they have to offer and some of the incredible uh, journeys they've been on uh, over these years, the OU, OU Israel, is presenting Jewish India with Ari and Ari. Starting on February the 3rd, you can, yourself can become a halachic adventurer and with both Aris experience the Jews of India and the remnants of the ten tribes inside their communities. We'll get into detail about that trip and plenty more. Dr. Ari Greenspan, welcome back to the Nachum Siegel Network. Hi, Nachum. How are you? Everything is wonderful. Great to speak to you. I love reuniting in this forum. You know, <laughs> earlier this morning, somebody found out <laughs> somebody found out that you're going to be with me uh, today to record this conversation. And uh, they said, could you ask Ari Greenspan one question? I said, sure. What's the question? They said, why? <laughs> why would somebody want to travel the world and climb in places that other people would find it very difficult to climb and crawl in places where I'm sure other people would find it very difficult to crawl, especially at our age, and go on these halachic <laughs> adventures? What's the answer, Dr. Greenspan? The answer is, first of all, what do you mean at our age? You may be old, but I'm not. <laughs> That's for sure. You really are not. Okay. Listen, I, I have to explain it to you. You know, you live in New York, and you get out of your car, and you go into an air-conditioned or heated building, and then you go out of your building into your car to your air-conditioned or heated house. There's no excitement in that nachum. It doesn't compare when you wriggle through an entrance into a geniza in the middle of a cemetery in India, and the local guy says, just be careful of bats or snakes. Oh. That's exciting. Oh. And you never know what you'll find. I found a book printed in Baghdad in there. It was really interesting. Yeah, the book in Baghdad, I can understand being excited about that. What was the first... Do you remember your first encounter with some of nature's interesting creatures that you just mentioned? Or was it no big deal like it would be today? No, there was a little boy. I lived in Panama as a little boy. And we went to the, um, the American Army. Which was, my dad was a chaplain. We went to, they had a, like a, a, a zoo. But the zoo was there because they had did jungle training for their guys, okay? And it was an old-fashioned monkey cage. And, you know, like Curious George with the bars going up and down. And there was a big sign that said, don't get close to the cage. But, you know, they were feeding the monkey. I figured it was okay. And the next minute, the monkey grabbed me with both hands and lifted me off the ground. That was when I got close to animals. That was my first experience. That's a pretty interesting experience. Today they'd have that on video, and you'd be, uh, you, would have gone, yeah. you would have gone viral already around the world with that scene. You know what I mean? Correct. Correct. That's for Correct. sure. Correct. Dr. Ari Greenspan. It was a safe animal. We have to talk kosher animals. Yeah, that's true. Well, you would argue that some of the animals that people think are not kosher might actually be kosher. That's for later in the conversation. Yes. Uh, you're, heading, you're heading to India. There is a Jewish India. And I'm starting with this only because if we start 
with some of the adventures you've already taken, we'll never get to the one that's upcoming. February, because there have been so many, February the 3rd it begins. It's essentially an almost two-week adventure with you and, of course, the other Ari. And you're promising that there will be, even though you're going to India, there will be plenty of Jewish sights and sounds for people to enjoy. So let's take a step back. Um, there are Jews all over the world, and some of the Jewish history is spectacular. And the Jewish communities in these far-fung places are disappearing. And when most people go to these places, you know, they go like a tourist. They sit in a tour bus, and they'll point out a shul here, and they'll point out a cemetery there. Right. And they'll do it in the main cities, because who wants to travel countryside to see another shul? Uh, Ari and I go in as sort of community members. Uh, and our interest always is Masora and traditions and kosher food and co- uh, local customs and color and clothing. Uh, just to give you a simple example, we were in Tunisia uh, this year, and uh, we've been in Jerba. So we've been there before. And uh, we see these old men in shul wearing fez you know, on their head and these pantaloons that come to their calf and you know, has like a, a lot of cloth in between the legs. And I noticed that there was a black line along the leg at the very end. I noticed that none of the Arabs had a black line of cloth there. So I asked one of the local guys, and he says, yeah, this is a Jewish pair of pants. The black cloth is Zechulachurban. Only the Jews wear it. So it's very fascinating. So India itself is an amazing country. It's colorful. It's vibrant. There are hundreds of different uh, tribes and languages. There's over a billion people in India. It's turning into one of Israel's big trading partners. And it's maybe the only place in the world where Jews have lived for hundreds, if not over a thousand years, with no anti-Semitism. It doesn't exist. It's amazing. Um, it's it, a, it is amazing. It's amazing. And, and is it just, when, when I think of those types of far-flung places, I'm sure you having lived here for plenty of time, know exactly what's going through my mind and all the reasons... You're, think, you're thinking far-flung like St. Louis is far-flung, right? <laughs> well, I'm thinking that a place like India, I assume I'm going to see a lot of poverty, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, you know, antiquated um, machinery or, or you know, items from the early 1900s as opposed to the early 2000s. Uh, I, I would guess that's probably all false, right? Um, no, it very much depends on where you are, um, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit uh, it's a slower pace life, and in the countryside for sure, you know, uh, you see you see stuff like that. Um, but uh, should I t- give you an idea of sort of what we're going to be seeing and what we're going to be doing? Yeah, and before you tell us that, have you done this already? In other words, you and Ari have already yeah. done this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's yeah, a, yeah, that's yeah, important. Yeah. That's important for people to realize that you've already uh, you've traversed the ground. You've already gone and done the trip already. So just tell me something. How much time is this uh, show? Well, we're going to be on for another, I don't know, 25 minutes or so. Okay, fine. Um, India is amazing, okay? There are four distinct groups of Jews, actually five distinct different groups of Jews in India. In Mumbai, formerly known as Bombay, there are two groups of Jews. One are called Baghdadis. Why? Because obviously they came from Baghdad in the 1700s. It was a bad time, and they were looking for opportunities to leave. And the man who came, who basically became the center of the community, and maybe the wealthiest Jew in the world, but certainly the wealthiest Jew in the East, was someone by the name of David Sasson. Mm -hmm. Um, 
He was the Rothschild of the East, for sure, a religious man. His kids were religious, and uh, they controlled all commercial enterprise in India, in Bombay, and actually across the East, all the way to China. They were selling, they were selling tea, they were trading opium, they were selling, uh, you know, everything. They owned everything. Um, and um, they were religious. They were from people. Um, so these are the people who I would say started the real Jewish community in India in the 1700s in Mumbai. But south of Mumbai, we go there by boat, and we'll be going there by boat, are, so I would call it a jungle, and there are synagogues in the jungle. Who was in the jungle? Another group of Jews that were called the B'nai Israel. Now, the B'nai Israel, you understand, name comes because they're Jews. But where did the name come from and who are they? So the Baghdadis look like they're from uh, Iraq. But the B'nai Israel look like Indian. And here's their story. Sometimes, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, seven couples were slaves, evidently from the time of the Purba, and that's one of their traditions, were shipwrecked on the coast of India. They know where they were shipwrecked, and today there's a there's a um, andarta. How do you say andarta in English? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a um, like a like a statue in honor of it. Ah, a, a, a memorial. A, 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 no, like a, not a memorial. Okay, a memorial, whatever. And but they landed. They had no safer Torah with them. They weren't learned people. But they knew they were Jews, and for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they were called, they called themselves, and the locals called them B'nai Israel, B'nai Israel, okay? They did what they knew. For example, they grew chaos, they kept Shabbos, they kept kosher, um, but they didn't have a Sefer Torah to read. Um, and they were sort of discovered in the 1700s and were brought into normative Judaism, interesting history, and so on and so forth. And uh, today, if you're in India and if you're in Mumbai, you see them, that's who you're seeing. Those are the Jews that are pretty much left. There are very few Baghdadis. The Baghdadis all have British citizenship, and many of them left when India got uh, their own citizenship, their, their independence. So we have this group of B'nai Israel. They used to live in the jungle there, and they had these villages. And in the middle of the jungle are spectacular shuls. So... We had done a lot of research when we went, of course, and we, we had somebody taking us around, and we came to this little, small village. And in this village, we were told there's one Jew left. We get to the village, and we see a horse-drawn carriage, all ungapats, you know, with like silver and metal and this and that. Turns out it's owned by this Jew, because what's his business? He owns horses, and he takes the brides and grooms their weddings in this carriage. Hmm. He took us into the one-room small shul with cobwebs. He doesn't know how to daven, but he still comes there every Friday afternoon and lights an oil candle that burns all week long. And Nahum, there are no places left like this in the world. It's an amazing thing. And there's one shul left that still has a minion. And we went into this little town. We'll be going to this shul when we're there. And we met a guy, the traditional business of the Jews was oil pressing. And he's the last traditional oil presser that exists in any of any place in India anymore. 
And he put me on his motorcycle, which has a big mug and dove on the front of it, and we drove through the village going to the shul. And as we're going through, he stops at his brother's house. And I look on the outside of the house, and I see pieces of paper with palms and their fingers, like inked onto the paper, sticking on the outside of the house. I said, what's that? It says, we shech the sheep for the Seder. And our custom is, is to put our palms in the blood and put it on the doorpost, zecher lemakat v'cholot. That's amazing. Those are minhagim that have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, and these are the very last people in the world that keep them. We'll have a chance to see this, this dying community that's going to die in our lifetime. And um, it's really quite a unique and unusual thing. Oh, Nobody right. gets to go to these places. Dr. Ari Greenspan is with us. The trip is, uh, starts February the 3rd, uh, and it goes to India. You described uh, the jungle and the synagogue in what we'll call the center of the jungle. What is, how far is it, and excuse the term, but how far is it from civilization? What, what do, you know, is this in an area that's 100 miles away from running water, or is it, or is there... No, 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 no. They have running water in, in the villages, and certainly in most of the villages. It's not terribly far from Mumbai, because Mumbai is a massive city that's, that's grown. I mean, we take a boat there. The boat's about an hour, an hour boat ride. Um, but, for example, we will be going up to visit a group um, that call themselves the Bnei Menashe. Right. Many of them have made Aliyah. The Rabbanut accepted them in Israel. They had to do uh, a giur, a conversion, a uh, stringent conversion, just to be sure that they were, that they're, you know, that everything was kosher with them. Um, they, they claim that they're from the, the tribe of Menashe, one of the ten tribes that was uh, sent into exile in the year 722 BCE. And um, this is going to be amazing. They live in villages in the countryside. Um, we're talking about northern I- India, towards the area of Burma and Afghanistan, places where the Jews were certainly exiled to. We will be the very first and only Jewish tour group as a group to have ever visited them. Now, individuals might have gone, but there's never been a tour group ever to visit them. And uh, this is very unique. They're in the process of making Aliyah. Uh, the fact that the Israeli chief rabbinate has accepted their lineage um, and is allowing them to make Aliyah says a lot about what their origins are. Uh, it should be a very unique thing. They themselves look Asian. They don't look like Indians, and they don't look like Baghdadis. And their tradition is that uh, they were somehow came in through China or from China, or they lived in China for a while. It's very unclear where their origins are. But we'll be the very first and the only group to have visited them as a group. How do they make a living there? That's a good question. You know, whatever jobs they have, some sell, some, you know, some are in business, some are work with their hands, some are farmers. Simple people. We're not talking about... Uh, you know, I don't think that there are any doctors or lawyers there. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, you may be the only one who ever who ever visits that say doctor. Um, Ari, no, no, no. there Go are ahead. there are others. There are others. What? There are others that visit them aside from you guys. Yeah, there are. There are visited them. In fact, there's an organization called Shavei Israel, run by a man by the name of Michael Floyd. Um, together with a Rabbi Eliel Birnbaum, who is uh, on the Rabbi Nuss in Israel, and 
they basically provide for them, teach them, have taught them about their Judaism, and uh, help support them with the shul and so on and so forth. So uh, that's uh, that's there. And um, then we're going to go visit possibly the most amazing story you have ever heard in your life. You ready? Yeah. Okay. There was a time when Zivitovsky and I used to run after the Meshuganas, and now the Meshuganas run after Here's what happened. I got a, a phone call a few years, two years ago, by some fellow here who's a convert and runs a program to teach converts and said, there's an Indian Christian minister that would like to meet with you. Why me? Because that other stuff that Zivo and I were involved in with Ugandans and uh, whatever. Long story, okay? And he comes to my house. Here's his story. The, you know, Regalachat, one, one foot here. Uh, he is the son of a Christian minister. His father was always very pro-Israel. Uh, he developed a, let's call it a biblical church, right? Much less uh, focused on, on um, even Christian holidays. It was more biblical holidays, although it was a, Catholic, it was a, uh, a Christian church. They had 3,000 members in the church. This man's name is Samuel. About 10 years ago, Samuel began to have doubts about the veracity of Christianity. Wow. And at some point, he disavowed Jesus and disavowed Christianity, and secretly in his house kept Judaism, as he understood it, based upon whatever he could read on the Internet and so on. But yet he was continued being the, 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 the pastor or the minister of this church of 3,000 people. And his kids had Hebrew names. He's got a son by the name of Moshe. And so on. one day, Moshe comes back from his Catholic school. And Moshe says, Abba, I'm supposed to be baptized tomorrow, but I don't want to be baptized. I'm Jewish. So Samuel sort of came out of the closet and announced, I'm Jewish. Mila Shemelai, who wants to stay with me? And 1,500 of his people said, we want to be Jewish. Okay, so I went to visit him. He came to Israel once. I went to visit him together with Ari, and he took us to the church where there were about 250 or 300 people, all wearing kippahs, women and men sitting separately. The women have their head covered. And I get to this building, and there's a huge sign that says, Erod, which is the name of the city, Torah Center. And you walk into this place, and they learn Torah, and there's uh, flags of Israel, and basically all these people want to convert. Over the last year, I spent a lot of time talking to them, and they begged me to try and help get them into a yeshiva in Israel to learn. And they actually came this summer to Ephrat, and they spent three months here in Israel learning Torah and learning Hebrew. So we will have been the very first and only group to have spent a day with them. We'll have a chance to teach them, we'll have a chance to talk with them, and... We will have a chance to cook over open fires in the field um, a kosher Indian dinner. Unbelievable. So you travel, you travel the world, and you don't just get the satisfaction of doing all these adventures. You get to change some lives as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And it's very possible that that's something that will come out of this trip, because having this group that will be traveling with us to Erod uh, will truly affect that group of people in India, without a doubt. And there, it's a combination of simple people, but also 
businessmen, they have a few doctors, you know, guys that work for international corporations. We're not talking necessarily about only, you know, uh, laborers, day laborers or simple people. Very fascinating. Very, very fascinating. When you travel with Dr. Ari and Dr. Ari to India, you'll be able to cook authentic Indian cuisine, ride elephants, visit the exotic spice gardens of the East, enjoy backwater boating in the marshes of Cochin. Your guides will be, of course, Doctors Ari Greenspan and Ari Zivitovsky. OUIsrael.org, the website has all the information, OUIsrael.org, or you can email OUIndia at OUIsrael.org for a direct response. It's OUIndia at OUIsrael.org. The uh, trip starts on February the 3rd with all the highlights that Dr. Greenspan has outlined. You're listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Program here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Do you have any idea what number trip this is for you? How many of these adventures you've actually taken together over the last couple? Uh, I, I don't know. Ari and I have been doing it since we're 18. Um, I know that we, I've been to like 45 countries doing this sort of stuff. Between Mila and Shrita and the teaching and trips to help in a baked-in with conversion and all of this, it's, you know, all over the all over the place. Yeah, all, all over the map, that's for sure. And Nine times to Ethiopia. I think I was just counting. Nine times to Ethiopia? Yeah. And and it's fascinating there, again, because of the conversion issue? In other words, why it's so fascinating for you to keep returning there? Mm, I don't know. It's hard for me to tell you. Every time I go, I say to Ari, I'm never coming back here. And then he looks at me and makes a face at me. I don't know. It's hard for me to tell you. But um, we'll have one more stop or two more stops on this trip. And that will be, we're spending Shabbat in Cochin. Okay, the Cochin is southwestern India. Also, very interesting story. There are Jews in Cochin, and their origins are unclear. They're called Cochinis, right? Yeah. They basically, in, almost in, in total, made Aliyah in the 50s. And uh, there are entire Cochini settlements in Israel. Very successful Aliyah, educated people. Their origin is shrouded in mystery. They received sometime hundreds and hundreds of years ago two brass plates from the local Raja, the local ruler, who exempted them from paying taxes and gave them a land for a synagogue. They developed their own minhagim. Also, it's unclear where they're from. There are those who want to say that they're the remnants of sailors that Shlomo Amelech, it says in the, in the Tanakh, that Shlomo sent a fleet to a place where they received ivory and tukim, parrots. And uh, there are those who say that these are the remnants of some of those sailors that were there, but their origins are unclear. In addition, in the 1500s, the Portuguese landed in uh, southern India and landed in Cochin. And there were Jews that had fled the Inquisition that made their way to Cochin. And when the, um, when the Portuguese landed, the Inquisition found its way there as well until the Portuguese were fought off and kicked off. So we have two distinct communities there. We have a Portuguese Jewish community with virtually nobody left with a spectacular shul. And we have the Cochini community with virtually nobody left. So we, we arrived there. We knew about the Paradisi Synagogue, which is the Portuguese synagogue, less interesting to me. We wanted to see the local people. We were told that there's two synagogues, did a lot of research, and one of the synagogues is the official synagogue, and the other, they said something about some guy that took it over, a Jewish guy, and runs his tropical fish business out of the synagogue. 
Already it sounds good, right? Yeah, why not? Why not? So we go to the main synagogue. You walk down a big street called Jew Street, right? Because the Jews had all their businesses there. And until today, until today, the business guys will do business and they use numbers in Hebrew, the non-Jews. Uh, and evidently, the Jews would hang around, and when somebody would come in and uh, want to buy something, and he would offer a price, uh, his buddy the Jew would say, you'll tear, you'll tear, you can get more for it, you can get more for it. So the locals still use that language. Anyway, we walked to the main shul, and it was closed, nobody answered the phone. So I had the address of this other shul, and sure enough, we find the sign at 7 o'clock at night that says, Tropical Fish. We walk in as the guy's locking up, and I say to him, Yiru, Shalom. He looks at us and says, Shalom. Said, Can we go into the shul? Of course. And he opens it up, takes us into a shul, beautiful, spectacular shul, with a spectacular hand-carved Aaron Kodesh that he tells us has not had a minion since 1972. Wow. And then in there, I said to Ari, we got to come back here with a minion and daven in this shul. So that's where we're going to be dominant on Shabbat. Uh, well, and this is it. First one since 1972, huh? First minion since 1972. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. unbelievable. <laughs> you know what it's going to be like to dominant that show? You know what that Friday night dominant is going to be like? Not it's going to be amazing. Very inspiring, that's for amazing, sure. Amazing, inspiring, and emotional, and so on. Anyway, that's about what the trip is. We're going to be seeing and doing things that no tourist see. The food will be being made daily in Delhi and shipped to us. Um, the food will be tasty, the food will be good, and the food will be plentiful, but it's not going to be, you know, like when you go in these fancy schmancy, um, <laughs> high-end, uh, kosher, kosher businesses. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know, I know how the caterers work when it comes to those tours. No, I mean, the food will be good, and the food will right. be interesting, and, uh, we'll have some local food, but, uh, you know, but that's also important. Important to know. Right, hundred percent. Different. You know, we offered we offered them that we could shoot some live sheets on the side there, but uh, the OU people didn't didn't particularly go for that. Would the people <laughs> there in the country go for it? Well, the truth is, it's a problem because the cows are holy there. Right. If you kill a cow, they might kill you. I don't right. know. And what about poultry? Would you be able to get away with that? We certainly could. That's not a problem, but I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, interesting. I mean, if we I mean, find a giraffe, we might. But yeah, you know, I mean, I've seen I've seen you. I hate to tell you where I've seen you, but I guess with the statute of limitations, I could say it publicly. I've seen you actually shecht an animal on the on the island of Manhattan. <laughs> I don't know if you remember right. that. Do you remember that? I remember more than one. Yeah. Oh, it happened more, than, more once. than once. I don't even know if that was officially yeah. illegal. You'd have to tell me what the regulations are. Yeah, but that was illegal. It was officially illegal. That was illegal. illegal. That was illegal. Even no, even even for the purpose people. even for the purposes of trying to learn Hilchoshkita. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> it was very. I have a video. I have a video of that. Nachum, and you should see some of the young guys that were in Smitha standing uh, around there today. Prominent, prominent rabbis around the country. Oh boy. Well. And uh, in any event, I don't know if you remember. This is a good one. I, I was once in Turkey. We were in a hotel in Turkey, and you called me, and you gave me some story about a billionaire that you know that wanted to slaughter a, a giraffe for his mother. Yeah, billionaire might be <laughs> might be an incorrect uh, reference, but yes, uh, there is somebody out there who wanted to throw a birthday party for their mother and wanted to actually serve giraffe, and because his mother only eats kosher, I had informed him that. You had always said that a giraffe, in fact, is kosher. You just have to know how to shecht it. That's right. And uh, unfortunately... It didn't happen. Well, one of the reasons it didn't happen is because regulations, again, play a major role in that, right? And they simply don't allow it to happen in the United States. 
In the United States, of course, not. So we worked out the complicated plan. An Israeli sailor, um, an officer, told me that he could shift it in Africa. We could sail it across the Atlantic, and he could do his party on a yacht offshore uh, out of the American <laughs> territorial waters. But it just never happened. It was no. at that point where I think he started having second thoughts. All right. Um, You've been writing a lot about your adventures. Were the early ones also documented in that way? Did you did, did you publish anything about your halachic adventures early on? No, no. We, you know, Ari and I in the early years, you know, we occasionally we'd write something. But I think one of the reasons we really started writing is because we realized that some of these things that we've seen and some of the things we've done and the people we've met in some small way, are historic, sure. and in some small way are important to document. And they publish a lot of pictures of your adventures. Have you ever had an encounter where a local was really upset you were photographing them, or they felt that something was too holy or too delicate to actually yeah, take yeah, a picture? Yeah, yeah. We once, we once we were in a place called Eritrea, northern uh, Africa, and it's a lot of Muslims, and we found a, a, a midget Muslim guy. And I stood next to him because I wanted a picture. He was upset. Other than that, I don't remember too many people being upset. So it doesn't. When it comes to buildings and objects, and you know, like, nah, it's no problem. And things in sanctuaries no. and stuff like that, nobody makes a big deal. Well, you never know. No. I'm, I'm sure you've been no. hit. I'm sure you've been hit with local sensitivities that you didn't consider in advance. Oh uh, yeah, I guess that happens. But I'll tell you a fascinating story. Ari and I were in um, Bahrain. You know, we're one of the one of the, um, the Gulf states. Right. And believe it or not, there's a Jewish community in Bahrain, and there's even a shul in Bahrain that's not used anymore. And the king won't let them sell it because I guess somehow it's important to him that he's, uh, he keeps his Jewish community. Anyway, we walked into a local um, sort of pharmacy, you know, but like natural stuff from the desert and all sorts of lizards and animals and leopard skins and, you know, all sorts of witchcraft stuff. And I'm wearing a Muslim kippah, and Ari's wearing a baseball cap. And the guy behind the counter speaks English, and he looks like he's uh, Saddam Hussein. He's got the mustache, and he's wearing a little sort of hat on his head. And we're there for about half an hour. We're looking at all sorts of these things, you know, as I say, that are mentioned in the Talmud. Uh, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of these natural, ancient uh, remedies and so on and so forth. And we're doing it mostly from a halachic perspective, trying to understand what things are. Anyway, we turn around to leave, and as we're leaving the store... This guy says to us in English, are you guys from Israel? And, like, we froze because nobody knew that we were from Israel. We weren't allowed to be there if we were from Israel. And we turned around and looked at him, and we hesitatingly said, yes. And he looked at us, and this is what came out of his mouth. Who did you vote for? The Ichud Lumi or the Likud? Oh, my gosh. He was an Egyptian that spent time in Aza in the 70s, loved his Hebrew, loved Israel, and was thrilled to write his name, Mohammed, in Hebrew. Unbelievable. These are the sort of things that happen as you travel this crazy, crazy world today. Do you always enter these countries with an American passport? Um, I try to. I try to. Bahrain was a crazy one because I had, um, I had a clean American passport. In other words, the State right. Department will issue you two passports, right? They'll issue you one if you've been to places where one country won't accept it, if you have uh, stamps in it, they'll give you a second passport. Right. So I was traveling on my clean passport. I just didn't realize that it had expired. <sighs> and I get to Egypt and saw that it was expired, and I realized I'm in trouble. They won't let me leave the, the airport to go to the embassy on my American passport because it's an American passport, and it's out of date. 
they won't let me leave on my Israeli passport because you need a visa that you have to do ahead of time. So I said to Ari, like, I don't have a choice. Let's fly to Bahrain. <laughs> we get to Bahraini Customs. I can't give them my Israeli passport. So I hand them this passport, and I look at the guy in the home, and I turn on the magic and start schmoozing with him. <laughs> and I was so valdel him that he just stamped my passport, let me into the country on, uh, a, on an out-of-date passport. Unbelievable. You know, it's it's funny because um, if if one would be if one would consider all the things that could go wrong on these trips, it would probably deter people like you from doing so. So you're obviously the type of person that just jumps right in, and you know, whatever happens, you deal with it as it comes along. Yeah, we were arrested one time. I think Ari Zivotovsky told us this story. Where were you held? In Uganda. Right. In he Uganda, told us, right. Yeah. Wait, did you try to actually go to the airport to see the old airport? We, with the we actually, against, uh, sort of illegally, we got, we got, we, we, we sort of had these two 18-year-old soldiers at a back gate of the airport where the Entebbe raid took place. And we, after being told by the police we're not allowed to go there, we went there. <laughs> and they gave us uh, passes, and we walking down this runway with helicopters taking off on the left and uh, jet fighters on the right <laughs> that we could touch. You know, we were, we were 30 feet away from them. And we come to the tower where, where uh, Yoni Netanyahu was killed. And just as we're about to start saying, uh, two security guys drive up in, in motorcycles. I said, what are you doing here? And I showed them that, you know, we have a thing. I said, we're about to say a memorial prairie in memory of my cousin, Yonatan Netanyahu. Would you join us? You know, and before we knew what was going on, they were singing, you know, Venoma Aramein. But the bottom line is I wanted a picture in a plane, the same C-130 that the Israelis used when they landed there. Right. And sure enough, there's the C-130 with the back open. So I asked the crew chief. And we got in, and we took a picture, and that was enough for security. They arrested us, and, okay, whole gun to mine. But it worked out okay. <laughs> i got to give you credit. I can't imagine pursuing these types of things. Dr. Ari Greenspan is with us. Halakhicadventures.com uh, gives you a perspective on what him and uh, Dr. Ari Zivotofsky are doing around the world. OU Israel uh, brings them and you uh, to India starting on the 3rd of February. We'll give you the contact information in a moment. i got to do one more topic with you before I let you go, and that, of course, is this whole uh, concept I alluded to when it came to the giraffe. Uh, you, with all the th- and the first time you were ever with me on the air, and we're talking about a long, long time ago, longer than either of us would care to admit, uh, we were talking mm-hmm. about uh, you know different uh, Jewish rituals, mitzvot. I think we spoke about shatnas and bris milah and many other things that you know are specialties, so to speak, in the Jewish mm-hmm. world, and, and obviously the adventures have become a big part of what you're known for, but you've also become known for revealing to the Jewish world that either um, different um, animals and birds that we think are not kosher actually are, or that kosher birds that we thought are extinct or not around anymore actually are around. Uh, how did you get into that whole category? Um, well, First of all, we will be making another dinner this August in Israel, an exotic kosher dinner with many, many courses of these sort of unusual exotic things. And I'll come back to you. We'll do an interview before that. Sure. But uh, the long and the short of it is I was asked to chef the bird called the pheasant. I knew nothing about the fact that birds need a tradition, a masorah, that they are kosher, meaning we have to know that Jews before us ate this bird, and we have to know it by, by visually seeing a bird with a man or a woman who, who visually saw someone from a previous generation eating that bird. Um, and I didn't know any of this, and then we started looking into it, and we saw Ramosha Feinstein himself forbade the bird because he couldn't find anybody 
who had shechted the bird and knew the bird. We knew the bird was shechted in the Talmud because the name appears. We knew the bird was shechted in the 1800s, but the name appears. But how do we know that that name is exactly what we call a pheasant today? Right. Maybe it's a different bird. Um, a Yemenite walked by in the base Medrash and said, uh, you know, this week, Rav Kapach, the great chief rabbi of the Yemenites, discussed the fact that he slaughtered these in Yemen. He remembers the rabbis eating them. We got this bird, we brought it to Rav Kapach, and he passed us the Masorah. We shafted the bird, he shafted the bird, and we all of a sudden understood that Masorah, and this is what the Shach in the Shulchan Aruch says, the Code of Jewish Law, he says it right on the side, he says, it's not a matter of going to your Rebbe and saying, do you have a Masorah? But it, it says there, and this is the language of the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi B'tzayid, my hunting rabbi. Meaning what? A rabbi in the base measures, what does he know from birds? He doesn't know. He can't recognize a bird. You've got to go to a Jewish hunter that knows that this is a kosher bird or somebody with a tradition. And we realize that these old men and women from Germany, from Yemen, from Iraq, from uh, Gibraltar, from wherever, were dying in our generation. And the younger generation certainly don't remember anybody bringing a bird to a shochet and having it shafted. So we sort of realized that it was up to us to capture these Masoras, and we spent about 10 years going around interviewing these old men and women, bringing them live birds and stuffed birds and so on. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's sort of uh, one of the historical and halachic adventures that we've been on. I know tastes are different for other for different people, but you've now had an opportunity to taste a lot of different uh, meat and poultry that many of us never have. If you'd have mm-hmm. to, if you'd have to say one is so delicious, you have to try to taste it at some point in your life. Which one would it be? I think an empire chicken <laughs> is better than the rest of them, huh? Now, listen, you know, you know what it is. We, with our Western palate, are used to fat juicy, tender meat and birds. And most of these wild birds have very unique, very interesting tastes. They're wild birds. They're muscular. They don't have fat. They haven't been bred generation after generation to not be able to stand because they're so front-heavy. And, uh, you know, we're used to this fat, you know, very, very soft and so on. The flavors are different. I'd say the most interesting thing I've had, two things. One, I just had in South America is a fish called the tambaki, which mamash tastes like a piece of meat, amazing, and um, an ibex. We once managed to get hold of an ibex and slaughter it. Um, that's the uh, yael of the Talmud and the Torah, uh, the animals that you see in Engedi, for example, with those rounded horns, and that was pretty spectacular. But you know, the reason we do this is, is not to eat the meat. Right. Yeah, okay, we can enjoy it, but our goal here is the halachic and masorah aspect of it. No, I understand that. Um, there's, uh, there is a debate about a turkey, right, about whether there's a masorah and whether one can therefore shecht it and eat it. Are you confident, yeah. that, are you confident after all your research that, that we eating turkeys is 100% fine? Yeah, for sure. It's not a question, but I mean, the, the, the question revolves around the following. If the turkey comes from America in 1492, how is it possible that there could be a masorah on it? It uh-huh. can't be. Right. But one of the great postkim of the late 1800s writes that they've been raised in the tens of thousands by tens of thousands of Jews for tens and tens of years, and they've never seen one become an attacking bird, and all the internal signs are those of kosher birds, and it's not really a question. And, and today, other than you know, two or three or four families and maybe a handful of people, everybody in the world eats turkey. In fact, 
Israel, I believe, leads the world per capita in turkey usage. Oh, there are no major Hasidic groups that outlawed for their Hasidim? No. I didn't realize that. I thought there was. Uh, and one last thing uh, that you've been involved with over the years, another thing that became very noteworthy uh, years ago, um, and and I say this because uh, every time I see my son wear his tchelis tzitzis, I think of you, because you and, and you and you and friends of yours and associates and colleagues, I should say, and researchers that you developed this with, are responsible for bringing tchelis the way we know it today to the uh, attention of many poskim, who then agreed with you that it should be used on uh, on tzitzis today. Yeah, one one caveat there. You shouldn't be thinking of me. You should be Uritem Hashem. That's when I look at my but, own senses, not when I look at someone else's. Okay. <laughs> All right, fine. But uh yeah, um I had the honor and privilege to be together with two or three of my buddies, Barb Sturman, Joel Guberman and Rabbi Elio Tevger, to just have been placed by Hashem in the right time and the right place in the right milieu, and we went scuba diving and collected those first snails in probably one thousand three hundred years. Uh, together with Rabbi Tevger, who had already done some research on it, and uh, you know, uh, many, many, many great, great poskim around the world, both modern Orthodox and today Haredi, even some Hasidim, are now wearing this, uh, wearing this toilet. And uh, you know, I think about the rabbi who, at the very beginning, said to me cynically. I'll wear it when the Godolin wear it. You know, when the Rambam wears it and the Rivet wears it, yeah. and that's when he'll wear it. But recently he came to me and said, you know what, put me on the list. I don't want to be the first, but I don't want to be the last. Wow, fantastic. Uh, Dr. Ari Greenspan, join him and Dr. Ari Zivotofsky in India on the 3rd of February for uh, a, a spectacular uh, two-week adventure. Go to halachicadventures.com. OU Israel, of course, brings you the trip. Go to ouisrael.org, or you can write directly at OUIndia at OUIsrael.org. Again, OUIndia at OUIsrael.org. Always great reuniting with you in this forum. Every time I pass your door in Yerushalayim, I say I'm going to stop by and say hello, and hopefully next time, in fact, I will, in fact, do that. Okay, nice talking with you. Nothing thanks for the time. A pleasure. Dr. Ari Greenspan from Yerushalayim with us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Again, it's the uh, OUIsrael.org website. OU India at OUIsrael.org. That's OU India at OUIsrael.org. Ah, ah, ah. 
Benny Friedman, before that, you heard Pimenta here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Don't forget our social media sites. It's, it's um, Facebook with the uh, Facebook update page, Nahum Siegel Network, on Twitter at Nahum Siegel Net, Instagram, Nahum Siegel Network. And don't forget a, a big thank you to um, Dr. Ari Greenspan for joining us on the 3rd of February. He and Dr. Ari Zivotofsky lead the uh, incredible trip 
a wonderful tour, a great group, to India, believe it or not, to India. Information, OUIsrael.org, OUIsrael.org, or direct by email, OUIndia at OUIsrael.org. Again, that's OUIndia at OUIsrael.org. You have been listening to another great edition of the OU Jewish Reaction Program here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Make sure to tune in next time and to go to OU.org for information about all the different things that the OU brings to the worldwide Jewish community. Make sure to install the NSN app and enjoy us everywhere you go for both Android and iPhone. This is the Malcolm Siegel Network. <laughs>